Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. Eugene England seemed to be one of those crossing the Brethren's line with regards to his theological musings. Did Fiona Givens cross the line? I'm going to ask those questions to Dr. Terrell Givens as we conclude our conversation about his biography of Eugene England. You won't want to miss this episode. Check it out. Would you say Gene was kind of a, a trailblazer? as far as where we are today in the intellectual LDS community, we're farther along because of Gene England, or did his work not matter? <laughs> it feels like he really got punched down a lot. Yeah, he did get punched down a lot. I'm not, I'm not it's, it's hard, right? One of the first things you learn as an intellectual historian is that one of the most impossible things to actually prove is intellectual influence right. or paternity, right? You can find correlations and correspondences. <clears throat> I, I, I personally, uh, as his biographer, uh, am witness to the fact that his, the most irrefutable influence that he had was in the hundreds and hundreds of lives, whose um, effectively their affidavits, right? Uh, Charlotte collected two large binders of testimonials of people who wrote in the aftermath of his death about the influence that he had had on their personal lives. So I don't know of any other individual outside of an ecclesiastical position who ministered to more people in effective ways. I think he has been a tremendously inspiring role model for a lot of, of Latter-day Saints who want to believe that one can be an intellectual in the best sense of the word and a disciple without compromise and integrate those two. I think he was one of the best modern examples we have of that. Uh, I think, ironically, much of his work, many of his contributions, were a return to some of the original ideas and motivations of Joseph Smith. I think that in many ways he, he was much truer to Joseph Smith than cultural varieties of Mormonism that evolved in the, in the 20th century. He understood uh, as Joseph Smith did, that Protestantism did not pave the way for the Restoration, doctrinally, at least. He understood that... Because missionaries teach that now, don't we? I hope, I hope they don't, but maybe they do. I did, I swear. <laughs> well, one might say, in, insofar as they, they fostered or, or at least exploited the press, the dissemination of the word of literacy and, and uh, religious... Pluralism, yes, but in terms of doctrine, right? oh yeah, there's nothing that I can think of that that the reformers provided that led us closer to the restored gospel. Right? What did they do? They took away the sacraments. They took away the principle of authority. They took away human free will and agency. They emphasized depravity. Emphasized inherited guilt. Do I need to go on? <laughs> well, yeah, but um, it seems like we're really trying to work hard to be nice to evangelicals, especially with regards to grace. There's you know, Stephen Robinson's really pushing that. And, and, like and, that was, and that's one place where, where Gene England inserted himself into the conversation and, and, uh, and, had, and, and, and felt that that was a misdirection. There is certainly a place for grace, an important place for grace. The problem is that language can be co-opted by dominant 
institutions and cultural movements. And that's what's happened to grace. So that now, if, if a born-again Christian comes to you and says, do you believe in grace? Well, as a Latter-day Saint, you could truthfully say yes, but that would be a mistruth insofar as you would be communicating something to him that is radically inconsistent with what he thinks it, you mean when you say that. Right. right. Um, because let's, let's, let's be specific here, right? Grace to a Protestant means imputed righteousness. It means I am not saved by anything I do. I am saved because when God's piercing eye goes towards me at the last minute, Jesus stands in front of me and God judges Jesus on my behalf. And that's why I'm saved by his righteousness, not mine. We don't believe that. We believe that's defeatist. In section 8832, verse 32, Joseph Smith explicitly disallows that version of grace. He says we cannot be sanctified by mercy, only by conformity to law. That doesn't mean we earn salvation. What that means is salvation is the process of learning to live like God lives, to emulate his conduct, his behavior, his love, his relationality. And we do that by seeing the guideposts that he calls laws and living in conformity with those principles and, and precepts. And that's how, that's how Gene England understood what was going on. And so he was dismayed about all this neo-orthodoxy where we're all talking about, well, we're saved by grace, we're saved by grace. Well, yes, in the sense that in the council in heaven before the world was created, Christ offered himself as an atoner to make possible our repentance. But that's a very different conception of grace than what one hears in the Protestant world today. So Gene England was a, a kind of lone voice saying, no, we're, 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 we're re-Protestantizing Mormonism. We don't want to do that. Um, he also liked to, to cite Brigham Young's teachings that God's purpose is to make us as independent in our sphere as he is in his. And Gene felt, and that's a very Joseph Smithite kind of thing to say too, right? Joseph Smith said there are three independent principles in the universe, right? God, the devil, and, and the human spirit. And yet, Gene was alarmed that in Mormon culture there is a movement toward Right, just believing there's this template, there's a, there's a blueprint for my life, and I've just I've got to conform to that. And so there's this kind of slavish mentality that it's always about conforming instead of living in this beautiful, grace-filled way, um, trying to just emulate God in freedom and in creativity. And again, that's, that was Gene's view. So that's why I say I can't find anything in his theology that was not absolutely rooted and orthodoxy, um, and uh, more particularly in a Joseph Smithian kind of orthodoxy that he thought culture had intervened. Uh, same thing with the social policies, right? His, his emphasis on peace um, and on treating women equally. And, right? These are all things that Joseph Smith um, right, could be seen as at, at, the, at the forefront. I mean, look, look at Joseph Smith's um, positions that he articulated when he ran for president, right? Abolish the prison system, right? That's not exactly right-wing Mormonism. Um, and uh, so he saw the radicalism in Joseph Smith's ideas and thinking. And I think he also saw that, I mean, Joseph Smith, and this is why I love Joseph Smith, he was so intellectually adventurous. I mean, from, from the School of the Prophets to the University of Nauvoo to Joseph's personal library, which I've tried to, to, to reconstruct uh, on my own, 
where he had two books of Catholic devotion, he had books of Methodist devotion, he had uh, a book on freedom of the will. I mean, he gathered from every religious tradition and syncretized and assimilated in uh, an inspired way, gathering with what he referred to as the voices in the wilderness. Um, and I think that that energized and excited Gene England. Uh, I think, you know, we went through a phase that began really in the 1940s and 50s, high, high point in the 1970s, of a kind of anti-intellectualism, where intellectuals were explicitly referred to as dangers to the church. Yeah, feminist gays and... Exactly, and, and Gene England knew that was the opposite of what Joseph Smith had taught. And, uh, and so, yeah, he was prescient, and uh, whether he helped us get there or, or pushed too hard too fast and retarded the progress is hard to say. Well, you know, and it feels like the church <laughs> it just kind of vacillates back and forth. There's openness, and then they close, and they're open again, and they're closed. You know, and I'm curious about your experience coming from Virginia, and now you're back here at BYU. Um, you know, lately there's been a big thing with, with Mother in Heaven, and I know I talked with Margaret Toscano a few months ago, um, and I, you know, there was a big scuttlebutt about Fiona, your wife, with mentioning Mother in Heaven. And Margaret said, I don't understand. This, was, this is an ancient Christian idea. Um, and so it seems like there's, there's openness, there's closed, closeness. Uh, can, yeah, can you yeah. talk about that issue? Yeah, well, you know, they're, they're very... There are varying ways of invoking Heavenly Father, Mother's name um, or of talking about her or approaching the, the subject of, of, the book of uh, Heavenly Mother in, in our theology or in doctrine. Uh, in the case of Fiona, she's doing cutting-edge research into the ancient traditions of the feminine divine, um, which should be completely innocuous, if not just a, a beautiful kind of addition to the corpus of scholarly understanding of how can we document the fact that so many ancient peoples yearned to find some kind of feminine presence in the heavens. And so her work is one of excavation, just trying to find, well, where can we find traces in the Old Testament and in, in Syriac Christianity and other uh, Near Eastern traditions. Um, the problem is that there's an institutional history uh, associated with feminists in the 1980s and 90s advocating prayer to Heavenly Mother, worship of Heavenly Mother. And so I think the institution at times gets very nervous uh, that one is going to bleed into the other. So that's, I think, my interpretation of, of what's at work here. Um, neither Fiona or I would ever advocate prayer or worship of Heavenly Mother, and, and uh, neither one of us certainly presume to have any doctrinal insights. Um, but I, I knew when I came to BYU that I was moving from a secular sphere to a, a, a church institutional one. And I read an essay many years ago by a, uh, a theologian in the Catholic Church, by the name of Marshall. And he, he wrote an essay called The Vocation of the Theologian in the Church. And he points out that if you believe in an institution that is presided over by men holding authority and keys, that they have the stewardship to speak on, in God's name, 
And the vocation of the theologian is to support and sustain and explicate those, those positions. And I think that's, that's pretty consistent with how I understand the role and responsibility of a committed member of the church who does work in theology or church history. So I don't see my, my responsibility or my right to be that of breaking new ground, moving ahead, changing directions. I believe that everything that I'm doing is uh, in support of uh, what the church teaches. Uh, I, I'm, I think there's a lot of interesting work that can be done to explicate our history and our past and contexts and implications and ramifications and presuppositions. And I think that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Is it easy to unintentionally step over a line that you didn't intend to? And, and did Eugene England do that? Well, um, I, I think that line is, is a moving line. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, there are that, that. And so it's impossible to know whose sensibility you're going to offend. Uh, I think at any given moment, they're, they're, well, you're never going to find, I don't believe you would ever find perfect conformity on any number of doctrinal, well, they're not doctrinal, right, on, on uh, contested teachings and ideas. In fact, Eric Eliason and I just published a couple of months ago a book called Yet to be Revealed, Undis or, uh, Open Questions in Mormon Theology. We can take an example, progression through the kingdoms. Um, at any given moment in our church's history, there's been a difference of opinion on the quorum about whether we can progress after judgment. And the majority of voices in the early church were, yes, of course we can. That's why it's called eternal progression, said B.H. Roberts. And in around 1900, when the first edition of uh, the Articles of Faith was published, a majority of the apostolic committee overseeing publication required James Talmadge to indicate that, yes, there is progression through the kingdom. So we know that was a majority opinion at one point. But it, 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 in no moment has the church ever officially declared is this or is that. Three times the First Presidency has said we don't have an official position. Um, and so I think there are many areas like that where, you know, we don't have a magisterium. We don't have an official book we can go to and say, yep, that's orthodoxy. Nope, that's not orthodoxy. It's a kind of moving target. So the vocation of, a, of anybody who presumes to work in the area of theology in the Mormon church is always fraught. With, with danger and risk. Mm -hmm. It is. Well, the last question I wanted to ask, I'll let you go, is, um, you know, I know you, you've been on John DeLynn's podcast before, and I know he's made a big deal about you won't go on there now. Um, do you have any comments on that? No, I would just say I, I'm willing to talk to anybody who's asking genuine questions. And uh, I, I've got so many projects. I've got so many publication um, commitments and deadlines, so many requests to speak to people who are asking real questions that I, I have to limit myself accordingly. There was a time when I would go on podcasts where uh, the hosts were not committed members, but neither were they uh, committed to opposition. Um, yeah, but if I feel somebody is a committed critic, then I just don't see how it's going to be productive. Mm -hmm. And I don't uh, personally or uh, in terms of productivity, I don't see that it, that it makes good sense. Uh, I will speak anywhere, anytime, to anybody who's, who's asking.
questions. Well, I, want to, I, I, I won't commit you, but I would love to talk about your party biography one day today, so I've been wanting to do that for a long time. But well, anyway. Ed, we, can, we can do that. All right. Another time. Well, Dr. Terrell Givens, I really, really appreciate you for sitting down here on Gospel Tangents. Good to be with you. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks. for having me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Terrell Givens. Terrell, thank you so much for sitting down with me. It was awesome. Can't wait to talk to you a little bit more about Parley Pratt and some of your other books. So thanks again. I really appreciate it. And also for those of you who won the, uh, the God Who Weeps, congratulations on that. So that's a great book. In our next conversation, I'm excited to introduce Dr. John Delenn. Yes, the big fish in Mormon podcasting. In our first part of the episode, we're going to talk about his dating an Oscar-winning actress. Well, when I was a freshman in high school at Katy High School in Katy, Texas, which is a suburb of Houston, I met Renee Zellweger at a, a speech and drama tournament. She was into speech and drama. and uh, Still is, I think. Yeah, still is a little bit. And uh, yeah, and she was just this bubbly, blonde, uh, you know, vivacious, talented human. And we became friends from that moment of my freshman year, and we were friends all through high school. We were in the same graduating class. We did date. Uh, we used to sing Beatles songs together. Uh, we, we went to Galveston Beach together. We did kiss. Uh, I, I will kiss and tell. Uh, but that's as far as it went. If you like what we're doing at Gospel Tangents, please support us. Go to gospeltangents.com and you can get full interviews as well as transcripts if you'd like those. So click here to subscribe and over here you can see some of our other great videos. Thanks again.